Welcome back to the Mature Movers podcast. Today we are going to be talking to Derek Slater. So Derek, let's start from the beginning um, and you can introduce yourself through your journey um, and your career. Sure. Uh, Thank you so much for having me on. It's a real pleasure. I feel really honoured to be asked. Um, Right. So I'm an occupational therapist by trade. And it's a bit of a like a lengthy story of how I actually got into it. <clears throat> so when I was finishing, I'm from Ireland. Um, and when I was finishing what we would call our um, leaving certs, you call it here your, not GSC, GCSEs, what comes after? A-levels. So I was finishing my A-levels and I didn't know what I wanted to be or what I wanted to do. And career, the career advisor was like, oh, maybe you should think about being a nurse or a physio. And I had zero interest in doing any of that. So I ended up studying um, complementary medicine at a college in Dublin for a couple of years. So I became like a personal trainer and sports injury therapist and reflexology and aromatherapy and diet nutrition, like a whole host of really great things. Um, But I wasn't like it wasn't my exact calling. I didn't get drawn into it. Um, my sister, she's got multiple sclerosis and she lives here in London and she was moving on to a new medication, uh, an intravenous one. So she needed to do like injections. Um, and she asked me if I would come over and support because it was quite a difficult transition onto that medication. So I moved over to London to help out my sister and got a job. I was super lucky. I had no experience, but I ended up getting a job working in a hospital that did neuro rehab. So I was working as an occupational therapy assistant and I really loved it. And it was a great place to put some of my like practical skills into practice in the hospital. Um, And then at the same time, I really fell in love with living in London. So I transferred a course over to the University of Westminster. I was studying Chinese medicine. And so I did that in the University of Westminster and stayed working in the hospital at the same time. And the hospital was super nice. And they offered me to go to uh, London South Bank to study to become an occupational therapist. And I was like, I can't pass up an opportunity to have free tuition. So I kind of fell into occupational therapy, but I absolutely adore it. I could not have picked a better career for myself. That I qualified in 2009. I did the um, four-year in-service training program at London South Bank. Amazing. Amazing. So um, first off, what a wonderful brother to move all the way across (laughs) country to support sister. Um, That's fantastic um and I think a lot of people and listeners will resonate with the idea and the fact that you didn't know what you wanted to do and things just fell into place for you um and you mentioned that you suggest that um a like a college advisor had suggested nursing or physio um so I'm suggesting you might have a background in sports or um fitness or health kind of what where did that suggestion come from yeah, so it's funny because I absolutely hated <laughs> PE and sports and all that kind of stuff when I was 
like uh, in secondary school because it was like rural Ireland all they ever did and all they ever wanted to do was football 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 and that just was not me at all so when I was um, 16 I started yoga and when I was 14 I started uh, martial arts and that's where my like love of health and fitness came from Um, and that's why the career guidance teachers they do like aptitude test tests and it would be all like this is the area that I'm interested in but it wasn't the standard route that I was interested in going I did I did interview for um nursing but it just wasn't it just wasn't for me at all and I ended up finding this course by myself and I was super lucky to get on the course in complementary medicine and that's where I got my qualifications in um health and fitness and personal training yeah amazing um and I think I mean you have this regular um snobby attitude from academics looking kind of at vocational qualifications and not necessarily being as good as a degree or um kind of that level so whereas from my own experience and just seeing it having those combined experiences and you just kind of had such an amazing I mean that course sounds incredible I've, I've never heard of anything like that in the UK or near me um, where you get all these complementary um, opportunities within the health and fitness industry so that's in itself is is an amazing opportunity and also I guess you learned so many things and, and had so many different perspectives throughout that that experience um, and then you mentioned you went on to occupation being an occupational therapy assistant and for those of that are listening that don't really know what that means can you explain what an OTA is of course I explain occupational therapy because literally nobody will know what it is (laughs) Uh, I didn't even know what it was so I think the best way I've got my own definition there's loads of like there's the World Federation of Occupational Therapists who have their own definition. There's the World College of Occupational Therapists that have their own definition. So every country in the world will have their own definition. But I've came up with my own. <clears throat> so the way I see it is um, everything that you do during the day to fill your time can be qualified as an occupation. So from getting up in the morning, getting washed and dressed to doing your taxes online to playing video games to sleeping every section of the time is an occupation so an occupational therapist is somebody who supports you to do something that you used to be able to do but can't do anymore because of an injury or an illness so that a good example would be somebody who's had a stroke and before they used to be able to get in and out of their bath no problem and now they might have some left-sided weakness and they can't do that transfer anymore so an OT will come out and either look at what kind of exercises we can do with you to strengthen you up or what kind of equipment or modifications we can do to be able to get you back into the bath or have that wash in a different way Um, or it's also somebody who if you have a particular goal that you want to achieve so say uh, before you've never been able to make beans and toast and it might be because of some Um, breadth defect that you have or maybe a learning disability an OT is the person who will work with you to give you those skills to be able to do the things that you want to be able to do. So that sounds really really rewarding Um, and I've actually had 
the opportunity to work with some OTs and OTAs within hospital fields. Um, and I guess for some people who could be listening, they never even realized that that was a need for somebody. Um, because if you're not surrounded by somebody who needs uh, special attention, whether it's, as you said, if they want to strengthen up their left or right side um, so that they can move better um, or just want to make beans on toast, um, I think we take these things for granted. And there are a lot of people out there that that could be a goal like climbing Mount Everest for them kind yeah, of absolutely. level. Yeah. Um, so you've, you've done all of that work. Before we go on to the next part of your story and your journey, I'm guessing that you work with a lot of people who are over the age of 60, um, just from what you were saying, uh, because obviously sometimes we develop through the aging process or through time, we develop certain illnesses or disabilities. Mm -hmm. um, and when you've been working with that within that population, kind of what are the key characteristics that you have seen within that industry? Um, and, and are there any stories that you can share with us? <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> um, I would safely say, so um, throughout my career, I've always worked with not always, but primarily worked with adults. So it's 18 plus. And I would safely say at least 80% of that population have always been 60 plus. Um, wow, what kind of stories? I don't think <laughs> I don't think any of my OT community social services stories are suitable for, <laughs> for a podcast because all the ones you remember are the ones that you shouldn't be. <laughs> 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 do you have any pg versions that you could share definitely there's i've had so many like not to because it's always going to be a team sport um being an ot you're never going to do anything by yourself um i've had some really good success stories one that was actually uh brought to my attention yesterday uh, an old colleague that i worked with was asking me about because they were doing a training course and they were asking me about this particular patient that I had um, who was um, morbidly obese, like the definitions of morbidly obese. Um, and she was living in a two-story house um, and couldn't get access to the community at all. She was pretty much stuck on the first floor. So we did a lot of work about rehousing. So we ended up finding a bungalow. So considering that this is an inner London city borough, ended up finding a, um, a bungalow and having it completely re remodeled. So having the doors widened, ramps put in, level access shower put in, specialist equipment. Um, so normally when you work with cases like this, you're supposed to like go in, do your assessment, do the intervention plan. Most of the interventions will be done like on your computer or referring over to different services, et cetera. And then when everything that you recommended is done, you go back out and review. But this particular case, because it was really, really complex, obviously you're aware of all the like comorbidities that will go along with um, uh, obesity. obesity. Yeah. Uh, particularly around like heart problems. She had lots of strain um, in her lungs when she was breathing because of the weight of her chest. So I um, made it a case to be a lot more hands-on 
um, and we looked at different types of mobility aids. So for her, being able just to get from her bed to the bedside commode was a massive achievement. Um, but what we ended up doing with the use of appropriate equipment and some exercise and some lifestyle changes was actually get her to be able to mobilize within this new environment. So not only was she able to get to the bedside commode, but she was actually able to use a frame and walk all the way into the bathroom and then all the way into the kitchen. And just a really simple activity that we would take for granted became like an exercise routine for her. Um, so, yeah, she's, as far as I'm aware, still alive and kicking today. So that was a huge bonus case for me. I, I, that's one that sticks out in my mind. Yeah, well, I was just about to say that sounds very rewarding. Um, I'm kind of like, yes, I did my job right. I did, I, I kind of helped somebody because, as you said, we take these things for granted, like getting up in the middle of the night and going to the toilet or going, getting up in the middle of the night and getting a drink. Um, and many of us take that for granted, but for many people, that is a huge effort to achieve yeah, within a day. Um, so going back to your journey, so you've become an OTA and you're getting some experience. What happens next? Yeah, so I was working in the hospital doing your rehab. Um, I was at the University of Westminster doing um, Chinese medicine. Work, we're all like, yeah, and we'll definitely sponsor you to do OT. Um, so I interviewed, got a place on the four-year in-service program at London South Bank. And that's where um, you work three days a week and go to uni two days a week. And it's a four-year course. And I absolutely loved it. I mean, I, I'd been to university before, but going to this university while you're at work at the same time is completely different you like I really feel like you absorb the knowledge a lot more because you can practically apply it to your work um, and then when I qualified I honestly thought that I was going to go into the world of neuro rehab because I like was fascinated with the brain and how it works and it's like such an infant um, area of research Expertise, yeah, yeah. But I ended up going into social services, which I was not expecting at all. So working for local local authorities and the government instead of the NHS. Um, and then um, I managed to work for a couple of really great inner London boroughs. And then in my last job, I managed a couple of services. I managed the complex occupational therapy. Uh, reablement and that's for facilitating people out of hospital so uh, if they're medically fit to come out of hospital we'll send in carers to rehabilitate them back up to their baseline the uh, sensory team which you know what that is and uh, adaptation service okay amazing you've been doing all of this stuff um, and I know just from um, kind of connecting with you um, online um, that you are also a carer yourself um, and how has that kind of linked in together and I miss I guess you had all this experience and this knowledge and this awareness of what a carer was and what it what's required to be a carer so if you don't mind sharing the story about how you've become a carer yourself to a family member yeah so um I have an elderly aunt she is 
it's her birthday tomorrow, 1st of April. She's going to be 92. Um, and she's got Alzheimer's dementia. And four years ago, um, she was living independently by herself, but really, really struggling. Uh, she had a pendant alarm and in one week called out the ambulance 22 times. She was a frequent faller in and out of hospital all the time. And then the last fall that she had was pretty bad. And she ended up going into a regional neuro rehab hospital, very similar to the one that I work in. Um, and she was they were supposed to give her six weeks uh, rehab and she ended up being in there for three months and never got back to her baseline but they wanted to discharge her back to her home environment and I knew that if she went home she lived in a three-story house that it would be it would be a massive no-no it would be just day one and either she would end up back in hospital or she'd have a fall that would be the end of her so we made a massive decision to move her out of her beautiful house. She lived outside of Brighton, a beach-fronted three-story house, to my tiny little hackney London <laughs> flat <laughs> with two bedrooms and me and my partner. Um, initially, we thought it was going to be like a temporary solution until we could find her somewhere else to live that was more suitable. But, yeah, yeah you made plans and God laughs kind of thing. She moved yeah. in and she's made it very clear that she never wants to move out. <laughs> <laughs> and how do you how do you say no to that, right? <laughs> oh, bless. Well, I mean, it's very inspiring what you're doing. Um you. being a carer and and I've worked within domiciliary care uh, before, um, but living so that's that is a full-time oh, job and it's um, such a hard job like like you said before I was actually a carer I had loads of experience with care so being an OT you'd go in and you'd be all like do this do that it's fine bye when you're actually living it it is completely different it is so so hard like don't get me wrong it has been the best learning lesson of my life and I love it but like there's some days, even for me, like your willpower is finite. And there are some days where I'm like, Lord, Lord Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Send help. <laughs> take the wheel. This is hard. <laughs> yeah. I and um I mean from just experiencing with that within my family. So um I, I have mentioned my grandma before in some of the other podcasts, but um she has also got Alzheimer's and um my auntie is her carer. But um unfortunately they're both very unwell. Um and being a full time carer is I think one of the most rewarding jobs, but one of the most difficult and challenging jobs in the planet because you have to discipline yourself to be a carer and a loved one at the same time. And sometimes you have to look at it as a job. And sometimes you have to look at it as this is somebody who I really care about mm -hmm. and I need to treat them um, in, in a respectful way, but I need to also kind of maintain boundaries for my own mental mm -hmm. health. So you've got all these struggles pulling you um, in all sorts of directions. Um, and I'm, I'm, I know that you're also working on some new exciting projects. So 
how has these life experiences in your journey led to where you are now? Yeah, um, that's a great question. So as I said before, I was working as an occupational therapist in an inner London borough. I was managing four teams. <clears throat> and part of my role was also managing single-handed care project. So that's where if you have two carers, you send an OT out and they'll analyze and observe and watch to see what's happening and then make recommendations for what kind of equipment can be provided to reduce the package of care down to one carer. Because there's lots of times where people don't really feel like it's dignified having two carers there, particularly if one person is standing around watching what's happening. So I managed that service. And at the same time, I was um, part of the recommissioning of care for the contracts. So I was looking at it from like a behind the scenes perspective. So looking at what councils want when it comes to care, looking at what care agencies are actually doing, looking at how it impacts on um, people's health and well-being. And at the very same time, I had my aunt living with me. And obviously, when I'm at work, I had to have carers come in to look after her. Uh, unfortunately, she's at the stage now where she's off her feet. So she needed particular equipment for transfers. Um, and every care agency that we had come out would say our policy is for health and safety and legal reasons, you have to have two carers. And I'm like, well, you show me the legislation that says that because there is no legislation that says you have to have two carers. And it was an impingement on her human rights. She didn't want two people coming into this tiny little room and like one person holding up her dress while the other person's wiping her bottom. It's just not dignified at all. Um, so I had to make the difficult decision because I was doing really well in my career. I had to make the decision whether to stay and then just complain about things or leave and be the change that I wanted to see. And I made the difficult decision to leave and be the change. <laughs> yeah, and it, it is hard. I have had to make decisions like that in the, in the past where you're in a very comfortable and good position with your life and your career and to tell somebody no I have to change and, and that um, diversion on your course can be really I think anxiety triggering um, because of that fear of uncertainty what if it doesn't work what if it's what if I fail um, but I, I from what I from what I know it sounds like you did make the right decision fingers crossed I hope so yeah. so um, I started a company called Sunday Care Therapy um, and I quit my job in February 2020 started the application because when you start a care agency you have to be registered with the CQC the care quality, quality commission. commission yeah um started the application with them in March went straight into a lockdown and didn't get our registration until December 2020 and then we had to make the really difficult decision of like do we go live now in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of a lockdown, or do we concentrate on doing like behind the scenes stuff for now with the aim of going live in May? And that's what we decided to do. So fingers crossed, all going well on our roadmap out of lockdown, we will hopefully be able to deliver live care in May. And what does the business model look like? Okay. Is it 
a domiciliary care company? Is it a residential care company? Or it's a it's a domiciliary care company. So we'll be sending. We call our our staff care partners. We send them out into the community to work with um, people in their own homes, much like my aunt Gladys. <clears throat> the main difference is every one of our clients will have an occupational therapy assessment and we'll determine what is important to them. And then we will, at all stages, promote independence and promote single-handed care. So I might go out, I will see somebody much like my Aunt Gladys and see that she's having difficulty with X, Y, and Z. So I will prescribe either equipment or exercises to try and get her back to her what might be a baseline. And then when my staff go out, our care partners, they will do that with her. So lots of times you'll have um, therapists from the NHS, like physios or OTs, who will go out and say, here, do these exercises and give you a piece of paper. And then nothing ever happens from it. And I think you know yourself how important exercise is. So we have a massive push on making sure that people are engaged in something that they actually find important and fun that's amazing um and a lot of the work that mature movers a project that i'm working on at the moment also the name of the podcast um is about how do we bridge the gap between somebody saying do this or somebody knowing i need to do this to somebody actually acting that process out and i still think there's a lot of ways around this and as you said, with your care partners, it's that accountability and that promotion to do it regularly. And I mean, from the experience within the health and fitness industry, from my point of view, is you get a very small percentage of people who can self-motivate. And I mean, I'm a personal trainer and I struggle to motivate myself to do exercises every day and Mm -hmm. to make sure I get my steps in and to make sure I eat well and all of those things that come with living a healthy, balanced lifestyle. But I understand the importance and I do have a, a sense of motivation to do it and I do get it done. However, there are people who have lives and the priorities aren't necessarily right um and it's not really my i'm i i can't say to somebody forget your kids forget your dog put fitness and health first you have to realize that real life is real life and things get in the way and not everybody thinks the same way like oh yeah i've really got to be healthy and i've got to eat well um and and then things like that so it's about balancing so how it how are you and your um your care partners going to promote that sustainability of movement, exercise, health, and well-being? That is a really good question. And I wish I could say the simple answer is, (laughs) but (laughs) it is completely different for everybody, like you said yourself. So um, a really basic way to look at it might be about understanding what their locus of control is. So how they perceive the world. Are they in charge of everything that's happening? And if that's the case, how can you do an internal motivation? So they might be somebody who's really motivated by facts and figures. So you can say, right, we can look at getting you a smartwatch. You can measure your steps. We can give you some um, information about different 
studies that have been done. There's some like amazing studies out at the moment regarding exercise and health and well-being, particularly around um, cognitive decline in later life. Um, so we might be able to look at some of those studies and say, look, if you do this amount of exercise throughout the day, you will reduce the risks of uh, developing Alzheimer's dementia in your life <clears throat> or any other comorbidities that go with it. Um, and then we might look at other people who would have an external locus of control. So they're like, it doesn't matter what I do, the universe has it, has it all laid out for me. And those people might be a lot better to have like um, posters up saying, this is what we're doing and why we're doing it and when we're doing it. So it's completely dependent on each person, how they are motivated um, and having an individual assessment and looking at the most important thing is what is important to them. So I might say, you have to do your exercises where you're like ranging your shoulder 20 times a day. And if you don't do it, your shoulder's going to seize up. If they're not going to do it, then we can look at how do you incorporate that into their care plan. So I could say to the care partners, when they're doing their wash and dress, you don't lift the shirt over their head, get them to do it themselves. That, just simple things like that. Well, I absolutely love it. Um and it's so refreshing to hear somebody else who has had the same struggles um, when it comes to getting people to do things and it's also find, <laughs> yeah, and also finding ways of getting around that. And I, I think there's a, there's a common assumption that there's no way to work your way around it. Like if somebody doesn't want to do it, they're not going to do it, but there are ways to work up to it and strategies that we can implement into people's lives to get them moving whether it's okay they're not going to do an exercise class or they're not going to go to the gym or they're not going to follow this youtube video but they might walk up the stairs once a day they yeah. might use their legs to stand up from the sofa instead of pushing up with their, their arms different things like that and people don't realize that that's really really important to okay. be able to sustain movement and things we take for granted um so you've got this amazing project that you're working on it's very current um and you're, you're not sure how it's going to go yet but I fully believe in 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 all of it um mm -hmm. so with that do you have anything else you want to add um yeah I just want to say I love your YouTube videos. I feel like you're literally going to steal half the stuff that you do to get my clients to do it. Um, and for me, I think if there was one thing that I was going to say to anybody when it comes to exercise, I think walking is definitely any way that you can mobilize. That is as long as you keep that going. It doesn't matter about the gym. It doesn't matter about your squats, as long as you keep walking every day. That is the most important thing, I think. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Derek. Um, and if we want to find you online or we want to connect with you, how do we do that? Yeah, so the website is your standard www.sunday, as in the day of the week, care, as in a care agency, therapy, as in occupational therapy.com. Now, I'll just quite quickly tell you where we came up with that name. So um, my aunt, when she lived back in Brighton, Sunday used to be her favourite day of the week because that's the time I would go down and see her. 
So we decided to name the company after that. So it was Sunday for her favorite day of the week, care because it's a care agency and therapy because we do therapy as well. Brilliant. I absolutely love that. That makes my heart melt. And it's such a catchy title. Like I love it. It's very modern, but also loving. And you've got that. um, You understand exactly what it does. Um, So thank you so much for sharing all that information and your journey and your story. Um, And I look forward to following the future project that is the Sunday. I want to say it right. Sunday Care Therapy. No. I've got it wrong. Sunday Care Therapy? therapy. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Brilliant. Okay. Thank you, Derek. Um, And good luck with everything.